Moment of truth. Ah, it works. That's a beautiful thing. <clears throat> Ooh, we might need to turn it down a little bit, though. <laughs> There's some echo going on. We're working out all the fun audio bugs this week. Um, you know, if you come to our house, raise your hand. Some of you have been to our house. Raise your hand if you've been to our house. A couple, a handful of you. Wow, way more than I thought. Wow, wow we're way too hospitable. We've got we to gotta tone that down a little, a little bit. I expected, <laughs> I don't know what I expected. Um, I guess we had a Christmas open house. If you come to our house, one of the things you'll notice is that um, it, it's, and this isn't a braggy thing, trust me, I'm getting to the demise part um, where, where I make fun of myself a little bit, but our house is usually like incessantly clean, um, especially for the fact that we have a four and a one-year-old. That's one of the things you'll note. You'll, you'll probably walk in and go, wow, how do, they, how do they manage to keep this house so tidy with, with children in their home? And, and the, really, the, the blame of that is, is twofold. Number one, um, I have insane hypercleanliness disorder. Um, it's a disease that I made up. Uh, and what that means is that if things aren't clean, I don't have zen. So you'll find that if I am sermon writing and you walk in my office, my office is always immaculate. Because if it isn't, I will clean it before I write my sermon, because otherwise I can't focus on writing my sermon. Right? I have this need for organization and cleanliness, and it's, it's kind of debilitating. But the other reason that our house is always so immaculate is that we have a dirty, dark secret as the Latz family, and it's called our basement. And our house is clean because everything that shouldn't be up there just goes down to our, our basement. And our basement is a place where if, if, you've, if you've been in our basement, that means we really love you. Uh, and you've probably signed an NDA before we took you down there because our basement is a disaster, was a disaster up until this week. But our, our basement is gross. It's, it's to the point where you really couldn't walk anywhere in it. We had this kind of pathway created so that we could get to our laundry because clean clothes are kind of a necessity. But it just was so full of stuff. And, and it really, our, our basement, if you walk in it right now, looks like kind of a, a hoarder inherited a $100,000 gift card to Toys R Us and Babies R Us and went on a spree and somehow fit it all in the basement of a, of a home that's about 2,000 or so square feet, right? It, it is a mess, it's so bad that in my cleanliness, in my OCD, when I have to go down to the basement for something, it affects the rest of my day. Like, my mood is just a little different. If you've ever had an evening meeting and, you know, I seem a little bitter, well, it's probably because I had to grab something out of the freezer in the basement before I came over to, to see you. And it just affects me. It shapes me. And there's, you know, the, I look back to when we bought that house pre-children and how majestically clean that space was. It was beautiful. There's a little treadmill down there, a little workout area. I had a little tool area. I could build stuff. I used to build stuff with wood for fun. I don't know when the last time I did that was. But I used to have this beautiful, meticulously clean. I used to vacuum our unfinished basement. That's how OCD I am. No joke. Right? Just to get rid of the little bit of dust that was in there. Not so much anymore. It was, it was so blissful once. But now we've got the chaos Muppets in our lives and things are just never the same, right? And Britta and I have been meaning to clean it out. As a matter of fact, we finally, part of why you'll see me smile so much today, we took off, Britta took off the whole week, and I took off one of the days this week, and we tackled, and by that I mean her primarily, she tackled that basement, right? And why was it that we didn't want to go down there? It's, it's because it's so overwhelming. I wouldn't even know where to start, that's why it sat like it did for a year and a half, because every time you go down to clean it, you want to get in there, you want to do something, you want to make it better, but it's just, you know, have you ever had that in life? You, you have a, a task or a, a problem that seems so insurmountable, right? Instead of just taking that first step, you look at the problem and it just debilitates you in, in the not moving, 
you almost become paralyzed with an inability to get something done because it's, you know, really all you need to do is step one of 65, but you don't think that way. You just look at the big problem ahead of you and you go, ah, I can't, I can't do it, right? Do you ever feel that way in life? You ever feel like it's just, there's these things that, man, if we just bucked up, we could probably get them done way quicker than we, than we thought we'd do, we, we would, but the start is such a hard thing to take that first step that it just debilitates us. Do you ever feel that way spiritually? Do you ever feel like, man, like, I, I know I should be studying God's word more, but, you know, or, or I should be more faithful as a Christian, or I should give more, but these things just seem so insurmountable. Like, I, I look at these people who are faithful Christians who I could just never aspire to be like, and I don't know how you get there. And so we almost kind of just stagnate and become atrophied in a way in our spiritual lives, don't we? Instead of just taking that first step, Whenever you look at somebody who you admire as a faithful Christian, one of the things you don't realize is there's about a thousand steps between where you are and where they are. And they didn't get there from one day to the next. Right? It took time. There's this spiritual atrophy that sets in when the task seems so great. Today's prophet seems to be addressing this kind of idea of spiritual atrophy. But he does it both in his time and we'll look at what that time exactly is, but also in a way that speaks to our time and how we can sometimes get stuck spiritually, both as individual people and as a church as a whole. And so this morning we're going to look at our our messenger series, week 10 out of 12. We're getting to the end uh, of the Minor Prophets, and we're looking at the prophet of Haggai. And and as we're going to see, Haggai sees this spiritual atrophy happening in his people in their specific context, which is very unique. And the Lord uses Haggai to confront it head on, right? But not just to confront. This isn't just the Lord knocking heads, which he does, but also to be an immense encouragement. This is one of those books where the Lord isn't just harsh, but tremendously hopeful and encouraging as well. So let's look at this small book. It's just two chapters, um, but it's a really mighty prophetic book. And, and first, we'll, we'll look at some background information on Haggai. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something a little different today. Um, if you're in the booth, you don't have to advance the slides, um, but there is a lot of scripture. And so I won't make us stand today, because if I did, you'd be standing about seven different times. And, and no one needs to do that on a Sunday morning early before they've had their lunch or cake. Amen? So just for today... Right? If you're used to standing in reverence of Scripture, just for today, we're going to remain seated for the brunt of the readings that we have so that we don't you know, kill our legs in the process. But let's look at some of the background of Haggai. Haggai is very unique as a book, and, and there's a couple reasons for this. Um, first off, Haggai's time of writing is different from a lot of the prophets that we've looked at in, in, in the past few weeks. Um, most of the times we've looked at a prophet, we've asked ourselves, you know, when were they prophesying and where? And they were in the north or the south kingdom-wise, and they were talking about the exile coming, whether it was uh, decades away or eminent. Um, Haggai is technically, I I guess you should say, in the southern kingdom, but Haggai is prophesying on the other end of the Babylonian exile. Haggai is teaching the people what God has to say during a time where they've been exiled by Babylon, and they are now back. As a matter of fact, at the time that Haggai's prophesying, they've been back for just about 18 to 20 years already. And so we, we are beyond the exile, beyond the punishment. The Lord has relented, and we'll look at that in detail in a second. But, but we're on the other side of it. 
They're returned to their homeland. They, they are allowed to go home. And things seem to be looking up. By all accounts, things should be great. They should be out of the captivity of the Babylonians and they should be moving forward. But as we'll see, they're not really doing that the way that God would want them to. Now, Haggai writes around the year 520 B.C., and as a matter of fact, we can get way more precise with this. And that's just one of the cool things about Haggai. Haggai, what if I told you that the first oracle that Haggai spoke to the people of God was written, was spoken to them on August 29th, 520 BC? Did you think I was full of it? We can, we can see this very clearly. All we have to do is go into the very beginning of Haggai, and we're not going to put it up on screen quite yet. But in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. And when you, when you look at the way that dating happened at the time and you trace it back, you can find out that that is August 29th, 520 BC. And we know that this is accurate because we have historical accounts of King Darius, the Persian king. We actually know that exact date. And we trace it back, and we actually know some other things too. And so Haggai starts on August 29th. He delivers four different oracles, and the last one is on December 18th, 520 BC. And we can look through the text of Haggai and see that date as well. And so Haggai prophesies in a very short span of only about four months or so to the people of God at a very specific time. Right? Now you might ask yourself, why? do we get such specific dating in Haggai, but not others? Wouldn't it be great if all scripture started like this? Hi, my name is Peter, and I have written this on the 30th of August, right? Wouldn't it be great we could have such a better understanding of the exact nature of when things came to be, but why do we get it with Haggai? And I think it's because it's really important to understand when Haggai preaches so that we can understand what Haggai says. You're going to get tired of the name Haggai. If any of you are having children or are going to have grandchildren soon, just suggest that as a name. Uh, it rolls off the tongue, Haggai. Um, or as one pastor friend I have, for some reason, decides to pronounce it Haggai. I, I don't know why. Um, most pronunciations that pastors from the stage will give you, it's just fake it till you make it. Uh, you know, if you're like, wow, he knows how to pronounce all these names. No, we just kind of fake it. and You just assume that I know that I'm right. Um, maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. Maybe it's Haggai. Right? But anyway, Haggai is, 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 is around this. And so what we see is he's preaching when the Israelites are able to return. So here's what happened. In 586 is when Babylon conquered Israel and exiled them out of their land. Right? So 586 BC, they're pulled out of the land. The Babylonian Empire is conquered itself by the Persians in 538. Eight, or 539, sorry, B.C. And so just a couple decades later, they're conquered. And so the Israelites found themselves really just exchanging one captor for another, right? They're conquered, and Cyrus is the king of Persia at the time of the conquering. And, and about a year after the, the, the Babylonians are conquered by Persia, and Cyrus becomes the new king of, of the Israelite people, Cyrus issues a, a decree. And he tells the people of Israel that they are permitted, he will free them, they are permitted to return to their homeland in order for them to rebuild their God's temple. And so from one day to the next almost, the fate of the Israelites changes. They've been oppressed under Babylonian rule. The Persians come in, take over, and they are far better off under the Persian Empire than they are under the Babylonian Empire. They are permitted to 
return by Cyrus the king. Around 530 or so, a little eight years later, Cyrus the king is killed. Uh, There's a guy named Cambyses who becomes king for a a couple years. And and so then when Haggai starts to write at 520 BC, the name of the king at the time is Darius. And Darius became king a year prior in 531. And so that's why we have in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. That's how we get to where we are. And so when he writes, we have had 18 years of the people being back in their land. What's significant about 18 years? Well, today we think of a generation as about 25 to 30 years. But based on when you would have children back then, 18 years was pretty much precisely one generation. And so these dates matter because when Haggai writes, the people of the Lord were permitted to go back to rebuild the temple, and they have been back to do that for one whole generation. Almost exactly. So let's see how they're progressing. This is Haggai 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Did I I mess that up? Okay. I'm trying to keep track of both. Carlton, if you could advance those, actually, that'd be great. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Word of the Lord. So, we have this, this intro here, and you get a sense that the culture into which Haggai speaks is, is one that's kind of atrophied, right? They've been allowed to be back, 18 years have passed, and they haven't actually rebuilt God's house yet. Instead, what they've done is they've turned inward again, right? They, they, it says they dwelled in paneled houses. They focused all their energy on building up their own homes before they put their energy into building up the homes of the Lord, right? They haven't built God's house. And their priorities, as God would put it, are completely out of order. Now, here's what's crazy. They actually started to build the temple a year after they arrived, right? Let's look at the book of Ezra, and we're going to go back and forth between Ezra and Haggai quite a bit today, because we see in Ezra the historical account of what Haggai is talking about in terms of prophecy. Here's Ezra. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites for 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord 
And Joshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together they supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple to the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with triumphs and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for he is steadfast, and his love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with great joy when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they get there in 538. In 537, the very next year, they start building the foundation of the temple, and they have a groundbreaking ceremony with great worship and joy to celebrate that we have started to build the temple back up. We don't have it yet, but its foundations are here. We can see it. It's coming And then from 538 to 520, it seems like nothing has happened. 17 years has gone by since they started the foundation. It's like a construction project that ran out of money somehow, right? And the Lord will have none of it. Let's go back to Haggai. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above and above you have withheld the dew, and the earth was, has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and the grain, and the, and the wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all of their labors. And so God kind of throws us down the gauntlet. He goes, have you noticed that things since you've moved back just aren't as sweet as you would expect them to be? Have you noticed that the ground seems to be way harder to farm than it ought to be? that there's crop that's not being produced when it should be produced? Have you noticed how everything just kind of stinks a little bit more than it should? Yeah, that's not by accident. I'm not with you because I don't have a house. It's almost kind of a, you know, if, if, if God could be passive-aggressive, which he isn't, you know, it almost would be a passive-aggressive. Well, I would be there to help make things great for you, but, you know, it's, I don't have a place to put my head. You know, maybe if you built me one, I'd show up. And so the the Lord is calling them out very bluntly to say, look, maybe it's because you haven't paid a shred of attention to me, your God, since you've been back into the land, which, by the way, I caused you to be permitted to go back to. You were punished under the rule of Babylon for decades. I relented. I saved you out of that. I brought you back to the land that is your home. And I ask that the temple be built It's been 18 years, guys. Where are we? Your houses are looking great. Did you just put a new hot tub in the back of that? Is that that what that is? That's that's an eight-person? Wow. Yeah, I have like like four bricks. What gives people? And so he's telling them, look, life isn't going to be sweet if you don't walk in obedience with me. You're not going to yield the crops that you want to yield. You're not going to have the life that you want to have unless you walk in obedience with me. And because you haven't obeyed, you never really came back. Though you came back, you didn't come back to me. You came back to land, but you never came back to your God. And it's about time that you do that. So get with it, people. 
The, the language that Haggai uses is blunt. And so Haggai and, and, and the readers, to, to the reader's shock, one of the things we see happen as a result is that the people obey, right? The average prophet track record for obedience is pretty low. Most of the time, the prophets speak truth to God's people, and they just kind of ignore it and move on until God punishes them. Haggai has a really great success rate. The people actually come in and celebrate. And here's what they do. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius's reign. And so even though we're told that they got to work, which is awesome, right? we have this response that they give to the Lord, they're faithful, they start to build, and they're working on it. And it tells us that in that time frame, they, they were able to, to finish at some point even the temple. Chapter 2 of Haggai still is this kind of oracle that gets inserted into the middle of it, right? So chapter 1 ends by telling us the people obeyed, and they built, and they built, and they built, and they built, and they built. And then Haggai goes back in chapter 2 to kind of the middle point of the building, and he interjects while they're in mid-construction, another oracle in chapter 2. And, and I believe that the beginning of chapter 2 is really the key to this whole book, especially for us in our time. See, Haggai is watching the rebuilding, but the Lord uses him to inject some, some truth and some hope as things become discouraging. It's this beautiful passage that shows us how much God knows his people, and in the midst of hard words, can offer a love and an encouragement and a hope and an embrace, still while being firm and strict and telling them what they're supposed to be doing, right? Just like a loving father calls us out when we need to, but does it with love and care and concern for us, so God does the same thing. Let's, let's take a look at that in Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the, first, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. You would think we could just say, speak to Z and J, right? The high priest and to all the remnants of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house, the Lord's house, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So what we see is that there's this undertone of discouragement happening in the midst of rebuilding. Here's what's happening. Some of the elders who are present during the construction are old enough that they were alive when the exile first happened. And they remember Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. And Solomon's temple was majestic. It was vast and large. It was one of the, the monuments to human achievement at that time. 
Right? You would walk up to that temple and be clad with gold, and, and it was the most beautiful structure that you've ever laid your eyes upon. And they remember the devastation of watching it destroyed in front of their very eyes. And so they look back when they're in the land again, as this temple's going up, at what used to be. And the temple that's being built is nowhere near the one that used to be. If you want to have some fun this week, go home and and look at images and, and drawings and architectural renderings of what would be Solomon's temple versus Zerubbabel's temple as it becomes known, as it's built under the, the essentially King Zerubbabel, right, or the, the leader at that time. And you'll notice that they are very different. It's like a mansion and a little hut in comparison. They are not the same. And so the people that are there that remember this as the building is happening They're getting discouragement from within their own souls because they're like, ah, this is good. We're back. We have our temple back. But man, it's, the old temple was better. I feel like the Lord was probably more present in that temple than than he will be in in this one. And so the elders are doing something that a lot of us do every once in a while is we remember the glory days, right? The people who had lived in that area, they, 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 they knew what it, what it used to be like. And they're like, yeah, this isn't the same. And so as they're building, as they're faithful and obedient, there's this discouragement that comes in. And so from within they are discouraged, but then they're also discouraged from without. See, there was, when they were exiled, other people were starting to live in the area that is Jerusalem, people that weren't of the Lord. And, and when they start building, those people who, who were there during the displacement are, are starting to clash with the Israelites. They're coming in and say, hey, I see that you're rebuilding the temple. Um, really great. Uh, by the way, we've been worshiping your God while you were gone. Yeah, we have. We've been worshiping him. Um, we've been sacrificing to him, which is weirdly not true because there's no altar around anywhere for them to have actually been doing that properly. And so they're, they're kind of either lying or don't understand what, what, God's, what the faith of the Lord is really about. Uh, but we've been, uh, we've been doing you know, the whole your God thing. Uh, we want to build with you. Um, and, and the Israelites say, yeah, no, you're not, you're not us. Right? It's like Mormons. Mormons are Christians. Well, no, no, they're not. If you have relatives or friends that are Mormons, I don't mean to offend you, but they're not. And we can talk about that. And I'm not, this is not a, it's not a negative thing. I'm just using them as an example, right? But it's kind of like that. Like, we, we worship the same God you do, just like you do. Let's, let's build with, let's build together. And they go, no, you're not really, this isn't really your thing. Uh, and so those people then begin to cause all kinds of troubles. They send letters back to Persia to try to stall the building process. And so you have from within this discouragement of, yeah, it's not as great. It's not going to be great anyway. And from without, you have the discouragement of them constantly trying to, to stall the building through various things. Because Persia was not only allowing them to build the temple, they were actually helping to fund it. Right? So there was all kinds of issues. So these people who were building, they're trying to be faithful to the Lord. They have internal struggles and they have external struggles. And what happens is they just become immensely discouraged. Right? We actually can see this external struggle if we look at Ezra 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they returned, exiles were building a temple, he approached Zerubbabel and he said, let us build with you for we worship God as you do and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. 
we've been here longer than you. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of them, what do they say? You have nothing to do with us in building the house of the Lord, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, the king of Cyrus, the king of Persia has commanded us. And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which is where we are when Haggai finally writes. Right? So those 17 years, why did nothing get done? Well, the people were discouraged. They were discouraged. There's two reasons. They were really discouraged because they were remembering the glory days, and they were really discouraged because they had this opposition from the outside. And then, so in their discouragement, they went into atrophy and just kind of stopped working on it. Can you relate to that? Instead, what happens when you have spiritual atrophy? You begin to focus inward instead. Do you ever feel like this personally? Do you ever feel like you're chasing the good old days when things were simpler? And you're so focused on hoping things would go back to how they were that you're not really even able to focus on how things could move forward? Do you ever feel like you're living your faith today with all this opposition around? It's just so hard. Maybe you work in a place where your faith is just attacked all the time. Maybe you have relatives who, when you show up to Thanksgiving and you try to pray for a meal, they just look at you with judgy eyes. You just know it's going to come. Maybe you work in a context or go to a school where you know that if you bring up your faith, it just everywhere you go, there's opposition to the word of the Lord. And, and we can talk all day about how we should stand firm, but man, it's just hard. And so when that happens... Right? Wouldn't it just be easier to kind of coast and drift? Right? That's what the people were facing. Ah, we started the, the temple. Ah, there's just so much opposition. It's not going great anyway, and these people are just being a pain in the neck. Let's, let's just take a pause, and we'll just go build our own homes for a bit. Maybe it'll get better. Right? And so the atrophy. Do you ever think that sometimes we function like this as a whole church, not just as individuals? Anyone remember the glory days when cultural Christianity still reigned? When a new neighbor moved into your neighborhood and the first question wasn't, do you go to church, but where do you go to church? Because it was just assumed that you went to church. Do you remember the glory days when you'd go out on a Sunday on your way to church and there'd be no runners running around because everybody was going to church? It seems like every year I see more people out and about on a Sunday not ready to go to, to, go to church. And so there's this, the glory days. Here's a test if you're somebody who likes to live in the glory days. Have you ever heard or uttered this phrase or something like it? You know, our Sunday school rooms, they used to be full. We used to be bursting at the seams. We used to have this pageant or that thing or whatever, right? I'm not talking about Stowe Prez as a, as a, as a unique entity, but whatever church you might have been a part of even before this, right? A lot of churches live in what we call the glory days. As a matter of fact, if we really thought about it for a while, some of the, the glory days were probably not even all that glorious. But, but our brains like us to think back, right? Maybe you've uttered phrases like this, oh, I liked it when it was this way. And it was so much better when X was going on. We do it in our own Christian lives as individuals, and we do it as a church. Almost every church I've ever called home goes through this, unless you're a church plant that doesn't have any past days. Every church that's been around for more than 30 years talks about the glory days. 
just the reality. Right? We compare what was to what is. And we look at the opposition of faith from the outside and we get so discouraged. And when we get discouraged, we start to feel stuck and then we atrophy and we just kind of coast in place. We do it in our own lives and we do it as, as churches as a whole. And, and so God in Haggai too speaks some hard truth into that, but also some real encouragement. He says, look, you, you may remember the temple. <clears throat> yeah, this temple is nothing like that temple. It's not even close. But in verse 4 he says, yet be strong. Work for I am with you. Have you ever thought that you have exactly what you need? Have you ever thought that as a person that the Lord has gifted you with and brought into your life and equipped you with everything that you need to do faithfully what God is asking you to do right now? Have you ever thought that as a church it's the exact same way? Right? You serve a God who provides exactly what you need for what he now in this particular moment calls you to. And so God's encouragement is to stop looking at the past or stop looking at the culture and instead focus on what God might be calling you or us to do right here, right now, with who is here and what we have and what talents and gifts and, and funds exist and what ministries run with all the things that God has currently equipped us with. That is what we are called to take and to move faithfully. You are placed with whatever gifts, talents, and maturity of faith you have where you are for a reason. And so instead of stepping back in spiritual atrophy, take a step. Stop looking at glory days or opposition and just understand that you serve a God who is immeasurably able and powerful and just take a step. Right? Our church Still Prez is placed here with the people it has, with the roster it has, with the members, the regular attenders, the visitors, the guests that it gets into its walls, with the budget it has, with the ministries it has, with the Bible studies it's running, with the ways that it's reaching out into the community, all the things we have and that we're doing, all the stuff that we're equipped with has been given to us by God uniquely for this time, for a reason. And God doesn't do any of that stuff by accident. Maybe the church is moving into an area of, of history where it is supposed to be more lean and mean. Maybe that's part of God's plan. Maybe as we study the history of the church throughout all generations from, from the inception when Abraham has promised a people all the way until today, you will see that there has always been a natural ebb and flow of, of the strength and the might of God's people. And sometimes it flows and sometimes it ebbs. And, and the Lord in the midst of all of it is really, really good, right? Now, does that mean we shouldn't seek to grow and to change and to, to move forward into new areas? Of, no, absolutely. But what we shouldn't do is just get stuck in wishing things were back so. Or wishing that the world outside would just be a little more receptive. And so we put our heads in the sand and we long for the day where some politician gives us some religious liberty that somehow is going to save it all. Really? And who's for you? It's not going to happen. Right? What God calls us to do is to be faithful with what we have at the time that we have it and to step out and to make a step forward. Right? And so God's ultimate promise in Haggai 2 is what motivates and guides us when it comes to this. Here's again number six. For thus says the Lord of hosts, talking about the, the smaller temple. 
Yet once more in a little while, I will make the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. It doesn't matter what our current state is, what our current resources are, what your current state as a Christian and what your resources are and what your abilities are and how faithful you think you are or what you're giving to the church. It doesn't matter what the current climate of the culture is either, how hostile or receptive to the faith it is. There is a day coming when God will gather all the treasures into this house, his house. That day is coming, that day is promised, and whatever picture you have of the glory days is going to be pitiful in comparison to what the Lord has for his church when his bride, when the, when the Lord returns for his bride, when Jesus comes again. And whatever picture you have of that day is just going to be paling in comparison. We are working towards a temple that is built by God himself, not by Solomon, the one who had a lot of resources, but by God who has all the resources. And so be satisfied in wherever the Lord has you as a person, as a family, as a church body, as a whole global body of believers. Take stock of what God has given us and then move and pray about how we might use it together. When we reminisce, things die. And the Lord is trying through the word of Haggai to wake the people up and say, look, the, the size of the temple doesn't matter. What matters is, is the Lord who has carried you. He carried you out of the land. He carried you into the land. He will provide for the rebuilding. He will, by the way, send his son to be the temple. To be destroyed and raised again in three days. And that temple is more majestic than anything you could ask for or imagine. We as a church are called to live faithfully in whatever season the Lord has put us, in whatever resource that the Lord has equipped us with, and to move in faith and to use those resources, not in a way that makes us comfortable and builds up ourselves, but in a way that glorifies Him and builds up the kingdom. Amen? Let's be about that business as we go forth from here this week. Let's be about that business in our own homes. And let's be about that business in his house as we build it up in the way that he would call us to. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. We praise you that you love us. And we praise you that you restore your people. We praise you that when your people don't walk in your ways, that you, you, you punish them, you discipline them in a way that is restorative, not meant to hurt, but meant to shape we praise you that you do that with us as well. Lord, we thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for this place, just as it is. We're grateful for your provision and your work in our midst. We're grateful for the way that you use this place and its people to change and shape lives, to give hope, to serve, to love, to care. And Lord, we pray that you would inject us with just an energy to take whatever next step we need to. We pray that each and every person who calls Stoprez home might find one more way to jump this week, one next step to take, one way to invest in your kingdom so that you might be glorified and your kingdom 
might be edified. Help us. Help us to be content, Lord, when it's hard not to be. Help us not to look at whatever church is next door. Help us to not look at our neighbor or our fellow Christian, but to look inward and to allow you to do the good work that your spirit promises to do. Be with us. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.